Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening. How are you? I'm doing great, Steve. Like I was telling you before the show, and there are, there are some times where work kind of gets me wrapped around the axle, but the the past week has just been fun and exciting and adventurous, and I'm just in a good mood. It's good to be in a good mood. I I was really enjoying the sun coming out. Like For me, it was uh, perfect weather yesterday. It was about, hmm, I don't know, 10 degrees Celsius, maybe 12 yesterday, about 53, 54 perfect weather for me. I was out there, get, got a good run in, feeling good. Uh, and then it rained today. Yeah, well, you're better off than me because it's raining today. And then we got a winter storm advisory. So, you know, going into April now and still dealing with winter weather. But I guess, say, la vie, what you get for living in North Dakota, huh? Yep, I'm not too much farther behind that. I, You know, it's amazing how much three hours south makes a difference. Yeah, it's way down. It's it's warm down south. Head down, <laughs> Steve, in the deep south, South Dakota. Oh, our first email comes in from Jordan. Jordan writes in and says, "Hey, no one, Steve. I run a few different services like Nextcloud, Matrix, and Jellyfin. I'm wondering if you know of any way to allow my users to log on to my self-hosted services with just one set of credentials." As time passes and I spin up more services, it becomes more and more cumbersome for my users to keep track of all of those accounts when they all have services hosted by the same person, me, and are all under the same domain, mine. Any thoughts? P.S. I've seen Steve at Ohio Linux Fest. Thanks for always doing panels. Big fan of the show, and thank you. So, Steve, uh, what are some options for Jordan? Is he just hosed? Are they just going to have to invest in a good password manager and try and keep track of a bunch of different credentials? No, there's there's a ton of ways you can skin this. Um, if you didn't want to set up any kind of um, single sign-on, so single sign-on is some sort of facility that allows you to use the same username and password across all of the devices. Usually what happens is um, if you hook up your single sign-on to a service like NextCloud, NextCloud doesn't actually know what your username and password is. It redirects to whatever your backend is. Maybe it's Active Directory or LDAP or whatever. Then that backend source authenticates you and sends back a signal. Sometimes it's a token. Sometimes it's just a yes, this person passed like a Kerberos ticket that says, yeah, this person authenticated and that's good enough for the end service. So if you want to set up something like that, it tends to be um, not, I don't want to say more involved, but but there's a little more complication to it. There, there are things that like LDAP that will do this for you. So Matrix, NextCloud, Jellyfin all support LDAP out of the box. Um, I haven't used Jellyfin a ton, but I have read that Jellyfin's LDAP implementation can be a little bit finicky. Um, but if you're looking at, at setting up an LDAP server to point these things at to manage your users and passwords in one place, you could look at Red Hat's IDM. Um, you can 
if you have go and sign up for like a, a regular developer's account, it's free. Um, and IDM comes with the base developer account. So you can just use that in perpetuity. I love it. That's the way I, I went even before, um, working so much at Red Hat, but there are other options like there's the 389 project, there's free IPA, and there's also a ton of things. I don't even know if, um, do you know, does Samba do LDAP backend? I know it can like approximate Active Directory. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the Samba protocol can straight up replace Active Directory. Yeah. So there's tons of options that way. If you're a little more developer focused, um, OAuth works against all of them. There's a plugin for Jellyfin. Um, and OAuth is a similar idea where it just gives you um, a backend to kind of curl against or whatever, however the facility works for each implementation. If you don't want to go so complicated, uh, you could do something crazy. And I, I, I really mean this. This is crazy. But you could have like a, a front end like um, like a proxy of some sort and have it do basic HTTP auth and then at least for Matrix and Jellyfin and things like that, it it could then just simply protect those things. And you could either have the kind of like open authentication on those where it doesn't really require a password, um, or you could still have the username and password. It depends on what you're trying to achieve. So I, I think for what you're asking for, LDAP is probably the best route. What do you think, Noah? I agree. In fact, if and I am by no means an identity management expert by any stretch of the imagination, but my understanding is Active Director is really a combination of Kerberos and and LDAP underneath. Yeah, uh, it is. They they did their own like they did their own mutation of LDAP, but yeah, it's it's LDAP underneath there. L- let me ask you this, Steve: What is the easiest way to get? up and running? So if you have all of these services, obviously there's 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 a bunch of stuff here. I, I seem to remember. If I'm scratching the recesses of my of my crazy brain, uh, back when I did my RHCSA, um, you weren't required to set up LDAP, but I think you were required to authenticate against it. That was part of the that was part of the shtick. So, I, and I remember doing parts of that, but mostly have not messed a lot with with identity management. What is the easiest way to get up and running out of the box? So there are plenty of things out there that. Um will help you do this easily, but there's easy and then there's kind of more standard-like. So the Red Hat's IDM, the 389 project, or Free IPA, they use straight up like conventional LDAP without any kind of twist on them. And then there are other products out there, projects, I should say, that um, I read about, have never used. I don't see them in the wild because they're not enterprise grade. But they're just basically allow you to have a nice front end on an LDAP server. So the three that I would recommend happen to all come from Red Hat or Community, but that's just because they follow the standard. There's plenty of other good ones out there. If you were to if you were to take a take a stab in the dark, what does it take from somebody that has no experience to get, uh, let's say, free IPA up and running? Um, it's not terribly difficult if you're not trying to understand what's happening along the way uh, because LDAP is complicated and and free ID, free IPA or the IDM server, they both abstract a lot of that stuff away from you. So if you're just following the, the documentation, there's plenty of guides out there that will help you be a cut and paste monkey that will get you up and running. Um, I would say your best bet is to 
either set up like a federation or a replication so that if you hose one of them, you don't have to remember, like go and try and recover everybody's username and password. But at the end of the day, um, it's not like you're managing several thousand of these uh, accounts. It doesn't sound like so. Um, it shouldn't be terrible. You're kind of making some assumptions about his family. I am. Uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking a jellyfin box supporting several thousand people is it's probably more money than what I've got. Yeah, that's fair. Our second email comes in from Michael. Michael writes in and says, greetings, Noah and Steve. This question is mostly hypothetical, but I thought maybe it would be an interesting problem to step through. I live in a 21 story building with three elevators. None of them have a screen inside there. There is one small screen by the elevators in the main lobby. For announcements, the strata, governing body of the condo, condo, mostly posts papers to a frame mounted on the wall. They've set up on each floor by the elevators. This is obviously slow and limited to one announcement at a time. I'm wondering how you would go about implementing a free and open source strata controllable announcement system on both the software, but in particular the hardware side of things, or if you know of one already. For background, I used to live in an apartment that had a screen on every elevator, but it was 85% advertisements with 10% news and weather and 5% announcements. I don't mind some advertisements if they are services that apply to people in the building or are from people in the building and bring some money for the strata, but it seems like the existing solutions are too heavily weighted towards ads. Thanks for the show, Michael. So I think when it comes to this stuff, there's you're talking about digital signage. Um, and so there is, uh, there are a, a couple of, of solutions here. So I'll start with the, the go-to industry standard. So the, the, the go-to industry standard is a company called Tightrope Media, and they make uh, not open source, and it's very expensive, but digital signage. I point that out because if you're looking for hey, what would you put in or how would you how would you do this? You know, tightrope is what you're going to see at a lot of event venues, concert venues, that kind of stuff. And so we can use that as kind of a frame of reference to say what kind of features would we be looking for and what kind of interface and functionality and all of that. When it comes into the open source side, I don't think that it, the, the noobs installer is a thing anymore. I think they've kind of gone away from that. But back when it was... What they used to promote projects that you could do with a Raspberry Pi. So if you bought a Raspberry Pi and flashed the noobs installer and booted into it and said, I don't know what to do with a Pi, I just want to do something, one of those options was a digital signage solution, and it was Screenly. Um, so Screenly, they have the open source edition. You can learn more at Screenly.io, uh, is exactly what you're looking for. It is an open source, popular digital signage uh, app and has a has a sane interface has the ability to load content you can control it remotely um all of the things once you start getting into where you want to do a lot of devices screenly will start charging you so they have a subscription plan and you pay per screen and that's obviously because they do you know you tie it to their service and then you can manage up to 500 screens um for like 35 bucks a month. I, well, actually, I think it goes up depending on, on, on how many you have. But you can do up to 500 screens. If you are going to pay for it, if you're not just going to use the two screens for free, I personally wouldn't use uh, Screenly. I personally would use a different project called Yodek. And Yodek is, uh, it is, it is a, the same kind of idea to where you have a digital signage and you're paying 
per month uh, per screen. But uh, the interface, in my opinion, is much better and 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 really competes with tightrope's products. And so when I start to look at that, I we've put those in in a couple different places where we were bidding against other places um, that were using go-to industry solutions. And we did the same thing with Raspberry Pis, and they were just as happy, and it saved them a ton of money. So I would check out those two things. I also include PySignage, uh, PySignage.com and InfoBeamer. I, don't, I have a little bit of experience with PySignage. I used it once, wasn't real thrilled with it. Um, and I don't know much about InfoBeamer, but it comes up a lot when you're looking at digital signage, so it's been kind of on my radar. But Screenly, Yodex, PySignage, and InfoBeamer would be the four digital, solu- digital signage solutions that you might look at um, that's kind of geared towards open source and runs on just uh, Raspberry Pis. And as far as other uh, hardware, you asked for hardware recommendations specifically. <clears throat> so obviously, the hardware that's going to run on the, har- the display sign player is just a regular Raspberry Pi. I highly recommend uh, the Argo One case for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, the Argo One case is going to give you a uh, a full size HDMI port on the side of uh, the Raspberry Pi, which on the latest generation of Raspberry Pi, it's going to have that micro HDMI, and so then you have to use a an adapter. So the Argon One gets rid of that. It also has a fan for active cooling and it's made out of aluminum. So it dissipates heat much better. Then as far as the TV, what I would do personally is I would go to a vendor like BNH photo video, and I would look at commercial TVs that are rated to be on 24 seven. There is a difference between the Samsung or LG TV you buy at Walmart or Best Buy. That's designed to go in your house and watch one or two hours of, of, of TV a night versus the kind of TV that you put up in a commercial building and you leave it on 24-7, 365 and have it displaying stuff. If you try to use a traditional consumer-grade TV, you're going to go through them once every few years and your your client or your apartment building isn't going to be very happy. If you purchase a commercial TV, they have ratings for how long they're designed to be on, Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, 24-7, that kind of thing. So you'll want to reference that and look at the amount of hours that it's rated for before you purchase a TV. And then once you have the Pi and you have TV, you either drop network to each of the locations or you connect the Pies over Wi-Fi and Bob's your uncle, you have digital signage. Our third email comes in from Zach. Zach writes in and says, Hey Noah, Eric, and Steve, thanks for diving into a real-world example of an engineering firm using open source. I myself have a much smaller engineering firm, but for many of the same reasons, we are stuck on Windows for the time being. My question is about CAD software specifically. I'm using AutoCAD, but I desperately want to get away from it due to the subscription model they have now. We do very basic drawing and viewing AutoCAD files and don't use any of the advanced features. So I'm always looking for an open source alternative. I've looked at LibreCAD, I've looked at FreeCAD and some others, but they're mostly geared towards parametric modeling and not just drafting. Any suggestions on this front are appreciated. Thanks for everything you do, Zach. So I can certainly reach out to Eric and see if he has any specific recommendations based on your particular use case. I will tell you, if this didn't come out in the interview, and I think it did, um, they are using BricsCAD or they are evaluating BricsCAD. And one of the things that Eric said he really liked about BricsCAD is that it models what older AutoCAD used to be before they did the redesign and came up with a new user interface and all of the things. And he said, I was really happy with AutoCAD the way it was for years. And then they changed stuff and I, I really didn't care for it. So... For him, 
going back to BricsCAD made a lot of sense. Um, and BricsCAD runs natively on Linux, so you won't have to struggle to get it running. But if you liked AutoCAD or have been using AutoCAD for years and you're interested in a solution that mimics the UI and workflow of AutoCAD, I might suggest that you take a look at BricsCAD. And I can tell you that is what Eric is currently evaluating as he kind of moves towards moving his entire engineering firm onto Linux. Our fourth email comes from Kevin. Kevin writes in and says, hey guys, I order the smart plug per your recommendation. There are a few questions I have regarding this plug. I purchased it for the power monitoring, but I noticed that the logs are cleared after a reboot. I also found that the last day of power usage is only the last day of power usage is logged. Is there a way to log this data for a longer period of time? And something that will persist perhaps after a reboot. I ran the firmware update from the plug's web UI, and now I cannot connect to it. Any tips on resetting the device so I can start fresh? I found a form mentioning that Tasmoda can easily be reset by disconnecting power for 30 seconds and power cycling the device six times. That did not prove to be successful to me. Here's a link to the one I purchased. Any links to cloudfree.shop? Any links to a smart plug that runs Tasmoda? P.S. Maybe this is a past episode and I've not come across it yet, but I think it would be a good show topic to discuss the differences between open source and free and open source software. Not all open source software is free, and I see that incorrect connection being made a lot. Kevin. So, Steve, you are the Tasmoda Smart Plug Cloud Free expert. Give me some ideas. What could Kevin do to retain some of that information, those logs, and how can keep that information persist after a reboot? So, Tasmoda provides you the ability to connect to a syslog server. So in doing some troubleshooting for a smart monitoring plug last week, I helped someone set up a syslog server and we're sending all of their data to that um, and your data will persist, obviously. Part of the reason why data doesn't persist is because there is only a small amount of RAM available on this device. And aside from that, it's got essentially... Um, like a EMMC. It's not it's not EMMC, it's a flash. But the point is is that it's not writable um, outside of the firmware update. So it can only hold a small amount of data at a time. So we're talking about like four megs or something of total space. So you wouldn't really want it to keep long um, long logs anyways. As for um, how you might get longer logs. It really depends on the plug itself. So some plugs will have an energy total as well as an energy yesterday and today setting. And that would depend on whether or not it's being tracked. And I'd have to look up to see if you can actually set that in the firmware. Um, someone in the chat has has kindly pointed out that I didn't really describe what a syslog server is. Uh, a syslog server is a facility inside of most Unixes to capture logs. Before systemd came along, our syslog is what was used by virtually every Unix-like system, and before that it was just syslog. So uh, there are packages for literally every distribution, and uh, even macOS can set this up, but don't ask me how, because I have no idea. <laughs> I'm proud of you for that. <laughs> um, so... It's it's pretty simple to set up. He had an the guy I was helping with had an old laptop. Uh, it syslog can run literally on anything. It it just requires some level of space. It's been around so long that it doesn't even have CPU and RAM 
uh, usage requirements because it's so old that it, it will literally run on anything that we can buy in the last 10 years, guaranteed. Um, so if you've got any kind of hard drive space, uh, unless you're throwing literally thousands upon thousands of logs per second at it, you know, the cheapest, silliest hard drive that you can get would be able to handle this. Um, there's a couple other options too. So you can actually have an MQTT broker set up. So MQTT is a message transport protocol specifically designed for smart devices. And it will just simply track whatever information is sent to it. Uh, so the MQTT broker can store this for you. And you could also do like most people do where they have it plugged into some sort of platform like OpenHAB or Home Assistant. Um, there's there's plenty of non-free ones out there too, like um, HomeKit, like Apple's one does this too. And they will also have their own type of retention after they store the data. So there's there's plenty of ways to keep the data around. I guess the question is, what do you intend to do with that data? And that really would inform how you're storing it over time. If you're just trying to look back and, and say, like, how is this going? Uh, for example, you could, if you really wanted to, you could actually have the information exported to InfluxDB, for example, um, which... Coincidentally, is something that I, I have my MQTT broker dumping its information into um, InfluxDB because it gives you a, an easy way to do graphs and queries and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. Can Home Assistant save any of these logs or is there a way to have Home Assistant uh, collect the logs from the device and display it inside of Home Assistant? Yeah, like I said, most of the platforms will do this for you, like OpenHab or Home Assistant. So once you plug it in, um, Home Assistant has its own built-in database that it may store this information in if you're not storing it somewhere else, um, as does OpenHab. So all of them have the ability to track these things over time. And yeah, it's it's been very reliable for me in that regard. Uh, your last question was about um, how do you reset it? When I looked up the documentation, um, it, it very specifically says that if you've got a button, like a device that has a button as opposed to like a light bulb or something, you're supposed to hold down the, the button for 40 seconds. And then after that, reset the device and reboot it and with a full power cycle. So you make sure like in this case, I would probably unplug it and then plug it back in after a couple seconds. Um, and that's supposed to enter it into device discovery or device recovery, pardon me, and I link that in the show notes for you. Perfect. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our pick of the week this week is PergOS or PergOS. PergOS is a peer-to-peer open source cloud storage service with a mini social network platform. So this is kind of cool. There's a lot of people out there, particularly after the whole COVID work from home thing that are moving towards Dropbox and Google Drive and all of that. Problem is, as some most of you are aware, if you were on one of the legacy Google uh, G Suite uh, Office subscriptions, obviously they're kicking people off and they're going to make an announcement on what is going to be available or to replace it, but they haven't quite come out with it. And so a lot of people are looking at what are they going to do instead? Well, Pergos might be something you'd look at. They're building the next web, the private web, where users are in control of their data. Now, you have to imagine 
you have these web apps, but they're secure by default and they don't track you. Imagine being able to control exactly what personal data each web app can see and imagine having to never log into an app ever again. All of the data is yours and it is stored where you can see it, but nobody else can. So Pergo, Pergo S, they believe that that privacy is a fundamental human right and they want to make it easy for everyone to interact online in ways that can respect this right. So PergOS is a decentralized protocol and runs on an open source platform for storage. So the idea here is you can share social media and you can share applications, but it's designed from the ground up to respect your security and privacy and restores ownership of control to the users through a seamless access management system and utilizes end-to-end -end encryption. Now, this is something new that I'd not seen before. A private social network. So typically we think of social networking, we think about publishing things to the open internet and allowing other people to see them. In this instance, the social network in Pergos is similar to Twitter or Instagram where any user can send another user a follow request, but the target user can accept and reciprocate or deny that request and who follows who is not visible to Pergos or the network. Um, they've also gone through some extensive lengths to protect metadata. So they go to great lengths to protect your metadata, your file names, uh, your the, the, the file sizes, the directory structure, the modifications times, the file types, and the friend list. All of these are not exposed to the server. It remains private. And finally, PergOS is decentralized. It's built on top of IPFS. So you can run PergOS on your own machine. You can still have access to your files through any PergOS server. Alternatively, you can pay another provider to store your data. Now, understand that because it's encrypted, because they're using end-to-end -end encryption, they're not going to be able to read or access your files. They're just storing that. Now, they have a small central server that stores usernames and public keys, and they sell access uh, to their essentially cloud storage. It's a little expensive for what it is. You get 200 megabytes for free. 50 gigs will cost you five euros a month or 500 gigs will cost you 25 euros a month. But again, the, the kind of the, the thing that's, I mean, there's plenty. C-File has been around to do encrypted uh, syncing for a while and NextCloud has been around if you're just looking for a way to replace Drop, Dropbox or, or, or Google Drive. What's different about this is the tie to this private social network and and the idea of building a decentralized network on top of IPFS. So highly recommend you check these guys out. You can learn more at peergos.org. That's peergos.org. Our gadget of the week is something that came straight out of Noah's imagination. Steve, I can't wait to get your thoughts on this. So the problem, everybody in my house, everybody in my house has electronic devices and they all want to charge them all at one time. Additionally, my kids download every app under God's green earth onto their phone or tablet or whatever else. And I never have really any idea of what apps have access to what functionalities on the phone. And so I just treat them as all highly untrusted cesspool devices. Um, also, because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm anal retentive like this. Every device that we've purchased is chargeable by USB type C so that I don't have to pay attention to, well, this device uses that charger and that device uses that charger. I wanted them, I wanted to kind of standardize everything on type C. Um, but the, the chink in the armor is that not everybody that comes into the house necessarily follows my type C standard. So I wanted a charging station that you could place in a, 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 a location in the house and bring any device from a laptop to a phone to whatever, and you could charge it 
at this charging station. So I looked at what was commercially available, and there are plenty of Type-C charging stations that have four, six, or whatever ports. The problem is they typically don't provide very much power coming out of, of, the, of the thing. You know, they'll have like one 65-watt port, and then the rest of them are like 10-watt you know, ports or 5-watt ports or whatever else. The third thing I wanted to consider is if you're going to charge five or six or seven 65 watt devices, that's a lot that starts to add up to some current coming through, um, you know, a single a single cord and whatever it's mounted to and whatever things are sitting there. If there's a problem with the charging of any particular unit, that energy is going to go somewhere. And if it's not charging a battery, it's going to turn into heat. And anytime you apply heat to lithium ion batteries, bad things happen. So I kind of wanted to be a little cognizant of if there was something was going to start on fire. And I can assume that if I put a bunch of portable devices all in one place and provide power to them, that if there was going to be a fire with one of those devices, probably the area it's going to be. How could I take that into consideration? So went on the other side of my garage on the inside of the house. And uh, put up some uh, put up some sheetrock and put a uh, essentially a, a a platform that I could mount a six way extension cord to, and I found a a, a six way extension cord that had the right spacing to apply these little uh, Type C anchor charging blocks, and these charging blocks from Anchor are the IQ. Uh, the 65-watt PIQ 3.0 PPS fast charging adapter. So it provides 65 watts of power. And it they're kind of nice because they're just a tiny little block. And uh, AC prongs on one side and a Type-C connector on the other side. And I plug six of those into a uh, into this, this six-way power splitter, which has enough space to accommodate these Anchor 65-watt PIQ blocks. And then mounted the entire thing to a, a piece of plywood and then built a box around the plywood so that the top of these charging blocks is exposed on the shelf that you can then set your electronic devices in. And so at the back of the shelf, there's just a bunch of Type-C ports. And then underneath, in inside of the little cubby, I've got little adapters for the people that come over and say, I have an iPhone. Well, great. Here's a Type-C to lightning adapter. I have a micro USB. Oh, great. Here's a Type-C to micro USB. But then in our house, because all of the devices are already type C. We just have little one foot, uh, not even one foot, they're like six inches, type C to type C cables, and you can plug in, and all the devices go into one room in the house, which I like for privacy. All the devices go into one room in the house, which I kind of like, and it's on the other side of the garage and away from the living quarters, so I kind of like it from a from a fire prevention or at least fire planning standpoint. Um, and I'm not limited to tiny little three-watt, five-watt chargers. I have full 65 watts on all six ports. What do you think, Steve? Good idea, or am I going to burn my house down? I would say if you're going to do that, you're going to want an an arc fault circuit breaker okay. on that circuit. And they cost like forty five bucks or something like that. They're they're kind of expensive, but that definitely brings you up to code because most places in the United States are supposed to under under the new code have this arc fault circuit breaker. But what that does for you is, I think it's something obscene, like eighty five percent of of electrical fires would be prevented if you had them on an arc fault uh, circuit breaker. It's specifically meant for shorts caused by um, extension cables or someone accidentally puts a screw through the wire or something of that nature. So if you're if you're talking about having, you know, four or five, six hundred watts being pulled through this because everybody's charging at 65 watts, 
I would definitely make sure that you have at least a, a 12 gauge wire on your outlet. Mm-hmm. So like if you're doing this on a power cord, I, I would, you don't need to. All the electrical nerds out there are going to be screaming at me like, you don't need to, 14 gauge is enough. But if I was doing this, I'd, I'd make sure it's 12 gauge so it can handle the extra heat. And I'd put an arc, arc fault uh, circuit breaker on whatever circuit it was that this was going on. So a traditional break, this is probably getting too deep in the woods for this, but traditional breaker is really what it's doing is it is if there is a a short in the in in the wire and it's drawing too much current the 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 breaker will trip but if there's a minor short if if it's not if it's if the short isn't causing an excess amount of current to be drawn it's just going to sit there happy as a clam right and that's what the arc fault breaker seeks to solve yeah it's well it's meant to really it's got advanced technology i'm using advanced in air quotes because i mean it's electricity but basically it's doing <laughs> sensing on the line and it trips way way faster than a traditional uh, breaker does because it's basically it's it's measuring for the lack of a better way of putting it the clean the clean energiness of of the line and as mm. soon as it's detected that there's a problem it's going to break it's going to flip the breaker so I'm going to play devil's advocate here for just a second. So if I've got six of these 65 watt adapters plugged in, I'm drawing 390 watts, right? So even on a 15 amp breaker uh, at 120, uh, I'm, oh, I, I should be good to 1800 watts, right? Yeah, it's not the wattage that you want the arc fault uh, circuit breaker for, right? So it's because when you're when you have this much draw on a on a line where you're going to leave it overnight and you're you are potentially generating a lot of heat like there's Mm. you're making this thing not someone else has not designed this for you to dissipate heat noah's decided that he's going to make this thing that's true if i was making a thing i would spend the extra 40 dollars flip the breaker off switch my circuit breaker just call it a day like you know the good That's news, what I would do. well, the good news for this is that there is literally an electrical panel on the other side of this wall because it's again, it's against my garage, and I have a garage sub panel. So running a running a a twelve gauge twenty amp line to this uh, outlet would be no big deal. But I, 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 it's in beta testing right now. It's not, uh, it's not a full fetch fledged product, Steve. So it's, it's kind of like, will the family use it, and does it serve our purposes? What I'm finding is that. The surface needs to be a little larger to accommodate uh, laptops, particularly if you're putting them on, if you got more than one. Um, so I'm still tweaking it a little bit, but I, I think I'm going to take your advice. And uh, A, because it's easy, and B, because I don't want to burn my house down. Well, to be clear, I wouldn't, I don't necessarily think you have to run 12 gauge wire to the outlet. I'm thinking about 12 gauge wire on the um, power bar that you're sticking oh. in. Oh. Because power bar, like you're talking about cheap end user devices that that they're probably not anticipating you pulling so much wattage out of everything at the same time potentially so it's just a yeah. little cautious like it costs you an extra five or ten bucks to get a uh, 12 gauge instead of 14 gauge on your power bar and i just i don't think you're going to draw that much it's just i i want to charge things while i'm sleeping i don't want to yeah. be woken up in the middle of the night by a fire alarm so yeah. i'll spend the extra 50 bucks to get the circuit breaker and a better power bar and you know, hopefully call it a day. A hundred percent. In fact, I'll, so I'll have the links at podcast.asnoahshow.com to the exact units I bought. I looked on the Amazon page for this six-way splitter to try to find what the power rating was, and uh, it's not anywhere on there. So I, I agree with you. I don't think they intended it to be used um, for this one. I did the math. It came out to 390 watts. I thought, well, that should, I mean, I would, 
I would hope that I'm fine there. Um, but really, it was predicated more on the fact that I needed a six-way power splitter that had enough space in between the outlets that I could fit all of these little power bricks in. Um, and so that, that's really what I, was, what I was going for. And it hasn't started on fire yet. So I guess I have that going for me. But No, I'm just overcautious. That's all. Yeah, it's good. Like I said, I don't want to burn my house down. So I'm going to take that. I, I think I'll make said modification and report back. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. Red Hat adds common criteria certification for Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8. GitLab has pushed out three version updates for critical vulnerabilities. Make sure you update your GitLab instances as soon as you can. And Apple, Facebook, and Discord have fallen for a social engineering attack and have sent private user data to hackers following a fake legal request. Friend of the show and Fedora project lead Matthew Miller calls out NVIDIA in a long Twitter thread and mentions the problems that many Linux users have with NVIDIA's proprietary drivers. Matthew also calls on NVIDIA to actually work with the community on their open source drivers. While on the topic of Fedora, Fedora 35 and Pop! OS 2120 have been shown running on a PS4. Fedora Linux 36 beta is now available with GNOME 42 as the default desktop, and a discussion on the Fedora mailing list has come up about including a possible GUI-based Linux recovery environment. In other releases, Alma Linux comes to the Windows subsystem for Linux. The community-sorted Red Hat-compatible distro is now available to Microsoft fans. Deep in Linux 20.5 becomes the first Linux distro to offer Face Unlock. Ubuntu 22.04 has now been released. Nitrix 2.1 released with support for the Linux kernel and the latest KDE Plasma. Carbon OS, an atomic Linux distribution that focuses on UX and robust system design, has released 2022.1. Thunderbird 102 is the next major release of the open source email client. Budgie 10.6.1 is the first minor release that includes fixes for bugs in the 10.6 series of the Budgie desktop environment. LibreAlpha 7.3.2 Community Edition is now available for download. Elementary OS founder Cassidy James revealed that he's left the company, opening questions about the future of the Linux distribution. It appears he was basically forced out of elementary by the co-owner, Danny Foray. Lockheed Martin is releasing a non-proprietary, open-source interface standard it says could enable future on-orbit satellite mission extension and augmentation. Peergos, an open-source, peer-to-peer cloud storage service, has released its latest version. Peergos is not just an ordinary alternative to Google Drive, it is much more than just a private web storage platform, as it gives you an end-to-end encrypted private web space built on top of the IPFS protocol. And lastly, IBM has released an open-source library, the Generative Toolkit for Scientific Discovery, GT4SD, with hopes of accelerating discovery within the field of machine learning. IBM has described the project as an open-source library to accelerate hypothesis generation in the scientific discovery process that eases the adoption of -of state-of-the-art generative models. So the conflict in the Ukraine has has polarized people. It really has, and it's allowed people to kind of dig into their camps and try to support what they believe is the right cause. And unfortunately or unfortunately, open source has found its way into into this. And you wouldn't think that software would have much to do with a geopolitical war, but in fact it does. And there's a couple of things that are exciting that have come out of this in the way of encryption technology and uh, security tools that are made available to people to communicate securely. And there's been some 
unkind or some not cool things that have come out of this in the way of companies that have been abusing their privileges and the 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 stewardship of the projects and services that they run and some of that has come out now you're seeing this weaponization of open source in where places like mongodb uh have 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 come out and said like hey we're going to have we're going to comply with sanctions and we've decided to cut off russian customers um you have protestware in where dependencies were injected into software that checks the IP address of the computer it's running on to see if it's inside of Russia. And I wanted to bring this up and I wanted to have this discussion because I'm not entirely convinced this is what good stewards of open source do. But the other side of that is when you are supporting an open source project or when you're using an open source project, it's not lost on me and it shouldn't be lost on you that you don't own that code. You don't have a right to take that code that's something that somebody has done on their own volition on their own dime on their own time and has gracefully decided to license it under an open source license so that you can use it and if you'd like you can take the code you can fork it you can make it your own you can maintain it and then you can do what you like with it but that code while it's under the stewardship of the original author is always going to be subject to whatever that author's belief system is what that author's worldview is and what that author the direction that that author chooses to take the project and so there's a number of examples that have come up um a community terraform module for AWS that had been updated to include political statements um there was a change in the license and additional terms for users from Russia and 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 Belarus um Steve, I want to get your thoughts on this. Is this an appropriate way for projects to come out and make a, a, a stand? Is this what we should expect from open source projects or is are, are we getting into a dangerous territory that irreparably harms the open source reputation? This is a tough one. Um, <clears throat> I have lots of conflicting thoughts on this when i when i was kind of mulling this over before the show i was thinking about how the people that are making these moves are doing very reactionary so i'm i'm speaking specifically of the projects that that are you know making a change in the terms of service or something like that it's very reactionary without a, whole, a lot of forethought so uh i think that we can all agree that the actions of a government do not necessarily reflect the belief of an individual, right? So you can be in any country, like I'm, I'm Canadian. Please don't hate me because I have Justin Trudeau as my leader right now. You know, <laughs> that there is, there is a, a big separation between how close, regardless of what you think about, about China, how close Canada and China have been getting and what I as an individual should play in that responsibility. And why I'm bringing this up is because if you are making these changes in terms of service and things like that, you're not actually going to stop the people you think you are. Like, your target is to try and affect political change. And by nuking my computer, you, you've just targeted someone that literally has no more power of this situation than you do. Lots of countries don't have the ability to recall their leaders. Like, even in Canada, after an election has happened, we basically wait for the next election because... Most of us don't have that facility to recall our leader. So if you go through and just say, arbitrarily, nobody in Canada can do this, like 
what does that actually accomplish? You're, you're putting pressure on someone who can't do anything. And if the government is taking such a tyrannical stance on something, they're not going to care that you just, you know, wiped out Steve's computer because it happens to have Canadian IP. And I'd like to point out that this thing, that, that methodology alone is so flawed. Um, I had my, I, my ISP was from Quebec while I was in Canada. However, the, their parent company was French, like from France. And so my IP always registered us as being from France, even though I'm in the middle of North America. And that, that is just one case where the, the methodology is flawed. So to go back to your question, to kind of walk, wrap this up tightly, I'd say when you're being reactionary like this, who are you actually trying to affect change from? Like we all know, or we think we know what the polit- political state in Russia is. So even if you're targeting their businesses and you know you get the small and medium businesses, what is that going to do? What are they going to do mm. to Putin? Right. Like, what did this actually accomplish? Except you feel good about your virtue signaling. Right. Virtue. That's exactly where I was going to go. So it it feels like it's some action is better than no action. Right. And to a degree, I will commend people for taking a stand. Like if you're a software developer and you look at what's happening in the world and you feel strongly about it and you say to yourself, what can I do? I'm not able to go fight this war. I'm not able to go support in any meaningful way. Well, I do control the software project and the software project is dependent on by X, Y, Z, A, B or C in Russia or in whatever state is not necessarily dependent on this particular circumstance. But I can understand and appreciate why somebody feels the need to say, Here's a way that I think I could affect change or here's how I can make I can add my paper cut to the list of paper cuts, making it problematic for those bad guys over there. I can I I can start to get my head there. What concerns me deeply is what happens when this is applied to something else? What happens when it's not something that, you know, basically you've got the vast majority of the world on one side and then some of the world on the other side? What happens when it's more polarized and what happens when it isn't as clear cut? Is this just something that we expect from open source? Like, hey, you use this project, but you never know when arbitrary code that doesn't benefit the user, doesn't benefit the scope or the goal of the project is put into the project purely for a political reason. Doesn't that start to take away from the integrity of the project? Doesn't that start to take away from the integrity of open source? And then don't we start to question like, well, do we have do we how much do we have to know about this developer and what their beliefs are and what might set them off to introduce something that isn't pertinent to the functionality of the software? Mm, I think that's largely a straw man argument. And the reason why I would say that is because Anybody who's writing any code can be influenced by a big guy with a gun and says, mm. you know, the, the government shows up at Microsoft store and is like, hey, you now have to ban everybody from Russia. Like, doesn't matter if it's if it's open source or closed source, that ability to to segregate people based on something arbitrary exists all over the place. So to mm. say, oh, well, people are going to lose trust in a open source. Maybe. I mean, I can see people reacting that way. But those are the people that aren't really um, 
thinking through the fact that this would have happened regardless, right? So lots of companies have have paused or stopped or withdrawn from Russia because of government sanctions and pressure and all of the rest of that. So it's not just the open source people that are um, trying to comply and or affect some sort of change by withholding their services. So we got, we got to be really careful about walking that line of saying, well, you know, how bad on the open source people? You make us all look bad. Like, I guess. But at the same time, there is it's it's a div, it's a complicated situation. And I think I fall down on the free speech side of thing and say, mm. like, this was their choice. They did this project. They chose to react in this way. You can either fork this or not and choose to go a different way. And that's that's at the end of the day. That's what we have the option to do. And I don't see any difference between a closed source company coming in and on a patch Tuesday just deciding, you know what, you can't use your hardware anymore because of some arbitrary reason. And someone saying, you know what, don't like what your government's doing. So now you have to sign a term of service that says they're jerks. So two bit in the chat room points out. It doesn't really hurt Russia anyway. The source code can be forked by Russia and has plenty of its own software developers. So to kind of piggyback off of your point, yes, we can do that. And so can Russia. So I guess we circle back to what did we what were you really trying to accomplish? What change were you really trying to affect from the get go? Yeah, well, that's that's really the big point, because the people that are going to be impacted by this are the people that don't have the wherewithal to deal with it anyways. And I don't mean that in a negative way, just like the mom and pop shop that just needs a website to work and they don't know that they're using this sort of plugin. These are the people that are going to be taken down. Any of the big corporations or the or even the medium sized ones that may have some level of influence will also have some wherewithal of like, how do I back out this change? Or the fact that they're probably not rolling forward changes right off the Internet into production like that's your your target your target to affect change is probably not going to be susceptible to this. Well, closed circuit to those mom and pop shops. Uh, when you see the question that asks if you agree that Putin doesn't respect the Ukrainian sovereignty and, ter- and, and territorial integrity, make sure to say yes, you agree to that. Set that variable to true. Or your terraform module isn't going to work. I mean, I, I guess you go that route, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. How what what good does that do? I guess my point is if you're asking just because you write something into your code that asks a question, how does that really change anything? I mean, if so, somebody in Russia clicks yes on the pop-up and now they're able to use the Terraform module, somebody, I mean, the, I just, it, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't pass yeah. the sniff test. You know, it's like those little pop-ups that say like, are you 13 years old or whatever? I mean, you know how many sites that kept me off of at 12 years old? Yeah, no kidding. So I, so, 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 okay. So there's that part of it. There is the weaponization part. The other side of this is the, the security side, right? So the British army has banned WhatsApp over fears that Russian hacking uh, of the platform will acquire operationally sensitive information. And so all personnel from senior officers to junior soldiers were asked to stop using the messaging service for professional purposes or they were going to face disciplinary actions. So Ministry of Defense document confirming that the ban uh, said that there was significant security concerns around WhatsApp. They can't encrypt the packet headers, which means that it's 
easy enough to introduce false information. And so both the U.S. and the U.K. have intercepted WhatsApp calls. And so essentially what they've said is if the U.S. knows that we have the ability to do this, it's highly likely that Russian intelligence services have the ability to at least determine location or get metadata information from people that are using um, these apps. And so they're switching. Uh, they're switching to things uh, like Signal. They're, they're switching to, I think it's Wicker is the other one that's funded by the Department of Defense. Um, so a lot of these places have started to to reevaluate the way they're communicating. And I think that's maybe some of the positive side that's come out of open source. You notice there are no, the proprietary things are being pushed down and said, hey, these are not working and there are some security concerns and the stuff that is being celebrated is open source. Thoughts on that? Well, first of all, what the heck are they doing? Like, <laughs> I, I understand that technical acumen is not the way that you, you choose your military, but for goodness sakes, people, like you're you're dealing with communication and the basic idea that it doesn't exist on my phone. Like you should be able to do some basic training and say, don't use something that is not ours. Right. That that's the basic thing, because even if it is encrypted, what happens like next year when quantum computing is a thing or whatever? And they just be like, oh, look at all these e like all of these encrypted messages that we just cracked from these highly um sought after targets like well really? and and like here's the deal steve it's not like whatsapp ever designed this to be for military operations right like that isn't their target audience hello yeah it's just that that boggles my mind especially because there there are um, government agencies that i work with uh through red hat where i can't even do like a screen share like they they're they're so strict that you can make a phone call, like you can have a phone call meeting with them, but you can't have like a, I don't know, I'm saying Zoom as a generic video meeting because they don't want anybody taking screenshots or or things of that nature. And then on the other side, we have people using cell phones and WhatsApp. Yeah, apparently that's uh, that's an issue the UK government is dealing with. Anyway, interesting, interesting, interesting stuff and have... Uh, Hope World War Three doesn't start. That's really where I can leave that. Hey, our upcoming community night, we do it the first Thursday of every month. It's going to be on April 7th at 7 p.m. You can join us in Mumble. You can learn more, mindripmedia.com. We'd love to have you. Uh, it's just a place for us to hang out and geek out. And uh, we try to answer some of the community's questions live and in person. So make sure to join us. Hey, we record the show every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. Please join us every week. We'll see you next Tuesday, 6 p.m. AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week.